In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. A screaming comes across the sky above Lower Manhattan. New York DA Alvin Bragg invited former President Donald Trump to testify before the grand jury investigating possible crimes growing out of the payment of hush money to Stormy Daniels in the weeks before the 2016 election. That invitation, which Trump surely will decline, combined with star witness Michael Cohen's testimony scheduled for today, signify that the former president has reached the end of the road and an indictment is forthcoming. A long period of legal twists and turns await us after the indictment, but for the first time in the nation's history, a former president will be charged with a crime. Anticipating the inevitable, Trump has assumed a bring-it-on posture and begun to rally his supporters with a remarkable message that his grievance is their grievance, and an attack on him is also an attack on them. Given the polarization in the country and the perception in Magaland of New York City as a deep state liberal stronghold, the political impact of the coming charges remains unclear. But it adds to a landscape in which many, if not most, Republicans, especially the party elites and funding honchos, seem to be casting about for an alternative to Trump. But Trump's faithful, constituting 30% or so of Republican voters, remains very difficult to peel off for his most likely viable challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Fox News, which continues to face a blockbuster defamation trial next month, weathered more revelations of widespread knowledge of the big lie across the entire organization, even as the network continued to propagate it, as exhibited by Fox celebrity broadcaster Tucker Carlson, who used distorted and selective portions of his newly obtained January 6th footage to double down and argue that the marauders were mere sightseers and that Biden's election wasn't on the up and up. As further evidence of the culture wars infecting our politics and roiling the lives of many Americans, bitter battles over abortion restrictions are being waged in states from Texas to Michigan to Florida, and a lawsuit pending before a single judge in Texas threatens to put a national hold on the most common form of termination in the country. To trace the legal and political fault lines and the strategic calculations within and between political parties, we welcome a great group of leading national commentators. And they are... Laura Jarrett, the newly minted, I think it's still fair to say, senior legal correspondent (laughs) for NBC News, where she covers the DOJ, the Supreme Court, everything legal. She previously worked at CNN for six years, most recently definitely paying her dues, anchoring the network's early morning program, early start. She also was a practicing lawyer before turning to journalism. Laura, so nice to see you again on Talking Feds. Always great to be with you, Harry. Ashley Parker, a senior national political correspondent for The Washington Post and an MSNBC analyst. She has also served as the White House Bureau Chief for The Post, and she was a part of two different teams that won Pulitzer Prizes in 2016 and 2022, the latter for reporting surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Thank you so much, Ashley, for coming back to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. And Alicia Menendez, the anchor of American Voices, where I'm lucky to be a frequent guest It airs Saturdays and Sundays at 6 p.m. on MSNBC. Alicia is the creator and host of the podcast Latina to Latina. In 2019, she published her first book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are. This is her first time on Talking Feds, though not for lack of trying on my part. (laughs) So happy to be able to welcome you to the podcast, Alicia. 
You are nothing if not persistent, Harry Litman. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think all three of our guests can attest to that quality of mine. All right. Let's start with the Thunderbolt from uh, Wall Street. D.A. Alvin Bragg is poised to indict the former president on charges growing out of the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels in the fall of 2016. And that's going to occasion untold hours of legal and political commentary in the coming months. But I just want to serve up one high-level question. The charge is premised on pre-presidential conduct. It feels a little contrived in the sense that the legal violation will have to do with misreporting, even though the heart of it seems to be the affair and the hushing it up, which it turns out not to be illegal. It just seems low down on the overall list of crimes against the republic that the former president perpetrated. So I just wanted to get your sense of that. Is it unfortunate in a way or suboptimal that this is the first criminal indictment we're seeing as opposed to something a little more in the heartland of what made him, I think it's fair to say, a wicked president? I think the premise of that might be a little bit difficult for three reporters, Harry. <laughs> but despite the way you have served that up. <laughs> too legal, too nerdy, too incomprehensible. Also too opinionated. <laughs> yeah, I think it assumes that the three of us take any position on any of what you said. Oh, your guests today. I've turned the tables on yins. Come on. Okay. Again, not taking a position one way or another about whether yeah. this is a prudent idea or he should be indicted. I think it is fair to say it's interesting legally to me that the zombie case is the one that may be the, the leading charge here that goes first of all the things that he's facing. As you said, so much scrutiny on financial issues, on what happened in Georgia with the election, January 6th, of all the things, it may be the hush money that he paid to Stephanie Clifford that ultimately results in a criminal charge. I also want to push back a little bit on this idea that it's picayune or that it's like low down on the scheme. If it's a crime and the district attorney can prove that crime beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, isn't this what we want? Isn't this the whole ball game that we constantly say the Justice Department shouldn't be political? And I know that this is the district attorney's office, not the U.S. Justice Department, but isn't this, isn't this how the system is supposed to work? And so... Yes, of course, it may be a misdemeanor that he brings. Who knows if he'll be able to elevate it to a felony. But even if it's a misdemeanor, isn't this the system at work? I will say the president is facing, as we know, a number of probes, including federal ones. And this is the one that is sort of just the most wonky and confusing to explain to a voter mm -hmm. from a political perspective, as opposed to something involving January 6th, where everyone watched that deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol unfold in real time on their television screens, or even the way the electorate has been primed to understand that classified documents cannot be brought home with you to your private gilded compound. So politically, I do think if this is the first indictment, it poses a bit of a challenge to message that. And then secondly, politically, up until this conversation, I spent a lot of time on the phone today talking to Republicans, many of whom do not want to see Trump run again and be successful about this moment of peril, right? You have these four probes, you have DeSantis rising, you have Republican allies of Donald Trump publicly coming out and saying it's time for someone else. And what's interesting is it should seem like a moment of peak peril for him. And it probably would for just about any other candidate. But the takeaway that I've gotten so far is for Trump, it's business as usual. And not a single one of these people thinks that any of these things, whether there's indictments, whether there's not indictments, whether DeSantis runs or doesn't run, really are going to hurt Trump politically. My friend Laura had a much more deft handling of your, your frame. I was going to say you're also talking to three moms of young kids. So my response to that was like, Harry Littman, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, to build on Ashley's point, I think part of what you also see then is Trump workshopping what is going to be his pushback and defense regardless yeah. of which of these cases is brought. And it follows his traditional playbook, which he defends. He jumps on Truth Social, his knockoff Twitter, and he says, I deny this affair. He goes on to you know, criticize Stormy Daniels' looks. He talks about Russia. He talks about 
Ukraine. He talks about Mueller. And he does this thing that we've seen him do before where he acts as though he is under attack. He uses the verbiage about a witch hunt that he's used in every case. And to me, the part that's always interesting is that he brings his supporters into the fold. He says, not only am I under attack, you are under attack too. Our way of being is under attack, which reminds me a lot of the language that we saw on stage at CPAC, where he, after four years as the president of the United States, has the audacity to paint himself as an outsider. And so to me, it's him saying, I am an outsider. This is this inside system. They're out to get me. They're out to get you. And I think regardless of which case ended up being the first in the pipeline, that was going to be the context that he used for all of them. And so this gives him an opportunity to workshop that, to see the extent to which it inoculates him in the court of public opinion, and the extent to which it keeps Republicans who have not yet gone up against him on his side. It's a really great point and kind of transitions to 2024. I was really struck, not just the language you used at CPAC. It was like almost messianic. I am your justice. I am your warrior. For anyone who's been wronged and excused, I am your retribution. It really was like taking on his voters and making them challenged uh, with him. And at least his attitude seemed to be, you know, bring it on, which I'll make one more legal point. Any defense lawyer would say now is you must just button it and say nothing anymore. All Everything he says, including, oh, I never had the affair, etc. That's devastating potentially if there's ever a trial, but he's rolling the dice on something bigger given the playbook he's used for the last many years. It's unprecedented in a way, or at least very unusual, but could be the right move for Donald Trump, right? Well, I mean, he is on stage at CPAC repeating the big lie, which I understand at this point, prosecutors have a corticopia of evidence. They don't need any more. It's not like every time he says something, they're like, ah, great, this is the thing that really puts us over. (laughs) Yet their cup runneth over and he continues to pour a little bit more into it time after time. What I found so interesting about the CPAC Club for Growth weekend, where you sort of had these two different camps is that it's not as though you have Trump and Trumpism and then a different branch of the Republican Party. What it is is you have Trump, Trumpism, and then Trumpism with a group of people that are now increasingly concerned about the electability of Donald Trump himself and are hyper-focused on that question. So you look at Ron DeSantis and the evolution of Ron DeSantis and who he has become in light of becoming a presidential frontrunner or harboring that ambition, And there is still a lot of Trumpism there, putting migrants who weren't even in his state on a plane to Martha's Vineyard without advance warning, without coordination with the state that he was sending them to. The fact that less than a year ago, you had him signing a 15-week abortion ban into law in Florida. And again, less than a year later, you now have the legislature in Florida advancing a six-week abortion ban, in part because you had other hopefuls like Christy Nome coming out and saying, I'm going to nudge other front runners to go even farther on abortion. You have his election police who have succeeded mostly in catching Floridians in the act of trying to participate in their democracy at the behest of their government. So you have Ron DeSantis, who's still carrying the mantle of Trumpism, but saying, I can win because I don't have all of the legal baggage that Trump himself has. And it's not just the policies, which you outlined so well, but it's also the language, right? Harry, you mentioned saying, you know, I am your justice, I am your savior. Then he said, you know, I am your retribution. And that sort of darkness has pervaded the entire Republican field from DeSantis, but even people like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Nikki Haley has announced she's running. Tim Scott is expected to announce he's running at some point. Just their language is very dark. And keep in mind for someone like Tim Scott, he's often been this kind of optimistic senator whose real pitch was his life story kind of intertwined with the history of our nation, speaking about both frankly and honest, but also optimistic and kind of hopeful terms. And even he in his first big speech in Iowa basically said, President Biden and Vice President Harris are laying out a blueprint for destroying America. And so I'm old enough to have covered candidates going after each other about what they believe the size of the government should be. 
I remember when John McCain took the microphone away from a woman at a town hall who began a racist rant against then candidate Barack Obama and, you know, kind of angrily dismissed him as an Arab. And John McCain takes the microphone away and says, he's a good man. We disagree on policy, but I need to stop you there. And now from the Republican side, certainly there is this kind of grim, ominous darkness that these are not just people they disagree with politically um, or on policy, but it's the language of good and evil and sort of, you know, a, a messianic battle for the future of the nation. Yeah, it's apocalyptic. This ain't the party of Ronald Reagan, right? And Alicia, the, your, that first example of Martha's Vineyard, there was like a, you know, jubilant cruelty, right? That aspect of it seemed especially uh, Trumpian, and that actually seemed to have advanced him. If I could stay with you for a second, Ashley, because you wrote a piece about the ebbing of Trump support. And I, I think everyone's referred to what's going to be, I think, a, the pivotal divide in the party now between there's a lot of big players, elites, money types who are increasingly nervous about Trump, but it's just not clear it translates or it really does more than make small inroads on his numbers, his 30% or whatever it is of diehard supporters. The Washington Post, I assume this is the story you're talking about, but we kind of launched on this big project where five of us went out into the country to swing states. Each of us went to two different counties within those states. One was a county that had gone for Trump in 2016 and then Biden in 2020. And then another was a county that was Trump, Trump in both 2016 and 2020 and talked to over 150 voters, um, Trump voters. And I was in Pennsylvania. And what was interesting to hear was that, yes, we all know in Washington, there's quiet conversations of donors and groups and politicians of how do we take him on? How do we make sure he's not the nominee again? But in talking to voters, they could fall into different categories. There's that sort of floor you mentioned, Harry, that he will not go below of 30% who truly believe the election was stolen. It's worth saying it wasn't. This is a false and baseless claim perpetuated by the former president. And they will just stick with Trump no matter what, right? They're the shoot people on Fifth Avenue crowd. And then what was interesting was there is this other group of Republicans, many of whom voted for Trump twice. And if he's the nominee, would happily vote for him again and will view any indictment of him as an attack on themselves as well. But they sort of say they kind of hope that the Republican nominee is someone else. Not because they don't like Trump. You know, they say he did a good job. He did a lot of good things. And they mainly blame the Democrats, the media, the witch hunts, everyone is just so unfair to him. And there's so much baggage and so much chaos. They think that someone else might be able to win. And that is kind of the most interesting group to me right now. And that is the group where all of the money and energy in the Republican primary is focused on of how do you peel these people away. And my two takeaways from interviewing over three dozen voters in two Pennsylvania counties was, on the one hand, it's good to be Donald Trump, Starting at 30% of your base who you don't lose no matter what is a really great way to start a Republican primary, but that there is also a real lane for a challenger. But the challenge is there is a real lane for one challenger. And if this is a field like 2016 again, where Trump has a minimum of 30, maybe DeSantis gets to 25 and Pence takes three and Nikki Haley takes four and Tim Scott takes seven and, you know, whatever these numbers are. Trump will win. The only chance Republicans have of beating Trump is if it is Trump versus one other person and just one other person. Is there a math problem here? Because remember, Trump himself never was over 50 percent approval rating, but also the last several victories for Republicans have been at under 50 percent popular vote. Do you think DeSantis or whoever it might be, and it does seem on Ashley's supposition, if it's one on one, it almost has to be he to have a chance. Do they have to peel away a chunk of these MAGA faithful, or is there a path to victory that concedes Trump voters as they've been steadily for six, seven years? It seems like they they have to do some work to chip away at some of that base. But what strikes me from Ashley and the team's reporting that's so interesting is it doesn't feel as though anybody is actually worried about the substance of the legal jeopardy or the legal claims, it feels like it's just like, ah, that seems like it's too messy or too much work or too much of a headache, as opposed to being deeply disturbed about our democracy being threatened or sort of the foundations in complete jeopardy. If in fact somebody who tried to overturn a past election was 
able to be a front runner. It doesn't seem like that's the concern. It really seems more of like a just, ugh, do we really want to go through this? And maybe that just seems like more of a headache, which is just sort of fascinating that that's where he's moved the needle at this point. And it also doesn't seem like any of the, well, certainly DeSantis has mentioned the legal issues, but it doesn't seem like that's the first word yeah. out of their mouths when they're thinking about like, what am I going to really get him on? It's not like he's facing a big in potential indictment in Georgia over stealing the election. That doesn't seem to ever be the argument, which is just kind of shocking. But I would posit, Laura, that that goes back to this insider-outsider thing. That yes. any time they try to bring it back to democracy, to 1-6, it then paints them wrongly as an insider who only cares yeah. about insidery things and doesn't understand yeah. their lives. Like, I have a question, though, for you and for Harry, which is I have been curious about the extent to which he is in this because of his legal troubles, because mm. he needs to have an avenue to continue mm. to fundraise, because he wants to keep his options open, whatever that might mean to him. Well, there was always some reporting, I feel like, back in the day, and Ashley will know this better than I, but there seemed to be some reporting that part of why he enjoyed holding on to power was the idea that he enjoyed some immunity while in office. And one of the downsides to being a private citizen, certainly at least in the eyes of the Justice Department, is that immunity is gone. And yeah. certainly in the eyes of some state prosecutors, those are pardon proof. I don't know to the extent that that's why he would actually want to run again. It seems like somewhat of a stretch, but certainly to the extent that he feels like he can fundraise or it's just like a great talking point to say that there's this rabid DA on my case and it was a complete hit job. That story sort of tells itself. You know, it's an interesting question. and I'm struck by the use of enjoy in Laura's answer. It seemed to me that that hypothesis was more plausible. Remember, this is a guy who insiders say didn't even want to be president in 2016. It was a brand building exercise. But since he announced, it has seemed to me like a joyless campaign, low energy, phlegmatic, and that at least, you know, gives rise to the hypothesis he's doing for something else until this weekend. So that's the first time that I saw him kind of energized and seeming like he was enjoying himself. And I was so struck by that language. I'm your warrior. I'm your justice. I'm your retribution. So the one-on-one -on -one prospect for DeSantis to me savaging. And just to uh, the point Ashley made, he said, we are never going back to the party of Karl Rove and Jeb Bush and Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan. Really? Don't forget Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Who's had an interesting couple weeks, actually, hasn't he? So it seems like he is really kind of jazzed up again in redefining the uh, party against all his enemies, which is the thing that does get his juices flowing. I can say that this other legal point, there's never going to be a trial for at least a year. There's just all, all the pretrial motions and the like, even in a normal case, and, the, and these ones aren't normal. So it really is going to be the sui generis, again, that's, that's a legal term, unprecedented kind of situation with a possible candidate of one party as an actual defendant. So that's, if nothing else, funky. To my mind, he doesn't calculate in that kind of nuanced or thoughtful way, but I think he now seems to be in the hunt. Jumping in there, I mean, one thing yeah. that was interesting for me was when the political world reckoned with the fact that in the media world that Trump was president and now we had to cover him. For those who had not covered the campaign and had not been paying attention, it took editors at just about every publication a long time to kind of fundamentally understand him. And Trump would do something and we as reporters would get these phone calls from editors of like, well, did he do this because it's yeah. sort of, you know, like LBJ-esque or he's playing three-dimensional chess and he did this. So McConnell will do this and then Schumer will do that and then Trump will come in with that. And the best quote I ever saw on this that I come back to is an anonymous quote in a publication that was not the Washington Post, but it was basically just like, he's not playing 3D chess. He's just sitting there like eating the puzzle pieces. And <laughs> once you understand that things, <laughs> I mean, he has this incredible sort of visceral 
instinct that people would kill for and a charisma when mm. he chooses to turn it on and a fundamental understanding of the electorate of messaging. But to your original point, Harry, the idea that he would sort of sit there with his lawyers and, you know, say, well, wait a minute, if right. I'm under these probes and I ran for office, how does this change the way they can go after me is just not a nuance or a thought process that in seven years of covering Trump, I have come to expect. And given that this has dominated American politics, this being Trump, Trumpism for years now, it's why then when something like Biden's budget comes out this week, it feels like a throwback to a different time where it's right. like, oh, we're right. going to actually have a governing. statement. Right. Yeah, governance, right? And it's like to look at something where it's like, yes, it's a tax and spend document. It's also a political document. It's a <laughs> statement of intent. But there are policies that match the intent. Now, regardless of whether or not you agree with them, there is still an articulation of what those priorities are. And during the Trump years, that just got lost to the wind. And so it's interesting to Ashley's great quote that she is quoting someone else about. He's not playing three-dimensional chess. He's eating. (laughs) Yes, he he is. But to me, this Biden budget is three-dimensional chess, right? It is them saying, these are the things that we are going to run on. These are the things we are going to jujitsu Republican attacks. There's so much anticipating that is happening because in addition to all of these questions about will Trump be the nominee, will DeSantis be the nominee, what are the legal perils that he is facing, they also just feel like they need to have something that they can run on legislatively, old school, that they can say, we're the party of paid family leave, we're the party of $35 insulin. They cannot sit around and wait for Republicans to figure this piece out, that while that is happening, they in tandem need to be building an agenda that they can point to and run on come 2024. Yeah, and that's a whole nother episode, but it does seem as if they are. All right, maybe a closeout question on this. I think it's implicit in what maybe all of you have said, and it's kind of a glum state of affairs, but Trump, DeSantis, or even Scott Haley, you know, whatever uh, miracle long odds those might be. There's like zero shot of a non-Trumpian or non-MAGA or traditional conservative candidate having the nomination for the Republicans in 2024. And to the extent that's what ails us as a country, it's not going to be cured soon. Is that your sense or no? I mean, again, right, DeSantis is leading in the polls now, but keep in mind, Jeb Bush was leading before, Scott Walker was leading before, Michelle Bachman once won the Iowa straw poll. And I would point you to people like a Mike Pence, who is almost certainly going to run, a Glenn Youngkin, maybe a Chris Christie, again, who knows how well they would do, but none of them, in all very different ways, are in the MAGA vein. I mean, Pence's fine line is he kind of wants to claim the MAGA record while being a, you know, a principled Reagan Republican with a servant's heart. I don't know if the electorate is up for that in 2024, but you will see (laughs) a few candidates who are not quite Trump light without the potential indictments. I would also say it sort of echoes some dynamics of Republican primaries past, where in order to win that primary, they tack to the right on a whole host of issues. And then come the general, they are well aware that they can't win in those positions Mm -hmm. and they begin to migrate closer to the center. And so I think that is another dynamic that is at play that I would layer on to yours, which is even if one of these folks who is Trumpian gets through the primary and wins the nomination, who are they on the other side of that? Because one of the things I heard when I was in states during these midterms was a lot of people being like, you know, like, I'm not super partisan. I just, I don't want wackadoos. They're so far out there. They're using the government for overreach. Like it wasn't deep loyalty to Democrats. It wasn't a total rejection of Republicans, but it was a discomfort with this current incarnation of the Republican Party. Yeah, that's a really good point. And remember, some of the candidates whom Ashley ticked off are, um, as in whom Ashley listed, are, you know, former traditional Republicans and who actually might, were they elected, unlike Trump, want to govern or get certain things done, uh, you know, even in a traditional conservative agenda. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important current concept in the news. And the topic today is, 
When can authorities charge young people with crimes? This rose to national attention with the shooting by a first grader of his teacher. There's an update on that that happened after the recording of today's sidebar, which is the authorities have decided not to charge the six-year-old for reasons that you'll understand better after hearing the sidebar, which will be read, I'm very happy to report, by Ms. Pat, a comedian, actor, and producer best known for her Emmy-nominated BET show, The Ms. Pat Show, which just premiered its third season. Ms. Pat also hosts the comedy podcast, The Pat Down, and the long-running morning radio show, The Morning Culture in Atlanta. Her first Netflix special, Y'all Wanna Hear Something Crazy, aired in 2022. In 2017, she published her memoir, Rabbit, covering the themes of crime, motherhood, and redemption. So I give you Ms. Pat discussing the topic of charging of very young offenders. The stunning shooting of his first grade teacher by a six-year-old Virginia boy raises the question when federal or state criminal law allows for charging of very young offenders. The question is caught up in fundamental assumption about the development of rationale and moral sense in young people and their ability to understand when they have committed crimes. The state and federal government supply various answers. In the federal system, age minimum for federal prosecution is 11. Act by a young person that would be crimes where they are older or treated as matter for social welfare system. 24 states literally have no age minimum for prosecuting a child. Theoretically, a toddler could face criminal charges in these states. Although in practice, prosecution of very young offenders is extremely rare. Florida allows prosecution as young as the age seven, Washington the age eight, and 16 states sets the age at 10. The highest age limit for youth prosecution is 13 in New Hampshire. A handful of these states with age minimum have exception for certain extreme offense, like murder. The age minimum are only part of the equation. Those states also have different requirements and age limits for prosecution as an adult or as a juvenile and for facing detention either in a juvenile car sale facility or a typical prison. For example, Virginia, where the six-year-old shot his teacher, is one of the 24 states without an age minimum for prosecution. With that said, the state does not limit the age in which a child can be sent to juvenile detention to 11. This put the child in a position of being both subject to prosecution but not subject to traditional punishment for something like a shooting. Activists in various states have pushed to raise the age limit minimum of criminal prosecution of children. The argument rests on the obvious. Kids are not fully responsible of their behavior. And on the more nuanced, that's being labeled delinquents. At a young age can have long-lasting psychological effects. Nonetheless, almost half of the state continue to allow for prosecution of children at any age. A relative problem is that young children can be subject to arrest a trauma event that can have a lasting impact on their life opportunity. This happened with disturbing frequencies. A CBS News investigation found that more than 700 elementary school children was arrested in 2017 through 2018 school year. An outside proportion of these arrests was of black children. Many of these arrests likely do not result in prosecution or charges, but the arrest itself is an outlier event as compared to the rest of the world. Most countries have a clear age minimum for arrest. The UN set a minimum age standard of 14 for being subject to criminal responsibility. The U.S. stands practical alone in its flexibility with charging children. For Talking Feds, I'm Ms. Pat. Thank you, Ms. Pat, for explaining when authorities will and won't bring charges against very young accused offenders. Ms. Pat is currently on a national stand-up tour and coming to a city near you. You can find all of her show and ticket information at mspatcomedy.com. One word, mspatcomedy.com. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. 
Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we pop into the beer aisle for a closer look at the two main types of beers, ales versus lagers. And to help separate lagers from ales, it first comes down to one thing, fermentation. That's the process where the yeast does its magic to give the beer its alcohol content and carbonation. Now, ales are fermented with top fermenting yeast at warm temperatures, somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas lagers are fermented with bottom fermenting yeast at colder temperatures, between 35 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of their warm fermentations, ales can generally ferment and age in a relatively short period of time, three to five weeks. Lagers can take longer, up to six to eight weeks. The difference in temperatures and time means this. The quicker fermentation in ales, including stouts, hefeweizens, pale ales, and IPAs, creates a fruitier, spicier flavor that's crisp and refreshing. At Total Wine and More, we have over 1,100 ales, so you can explore all you want. Lagers, including Hellas, Pilsners, have a smoother, richer, more mellow, and robust flavor than ales, thanks to their longer fermentation time. We can thank the Bavarian brewers from the Middle Ages for discovering the benefits of longer fermentation after storing their brews in ice caves during the winter. In fact, lager in German means to store, which adds up since lager beer was brewed, covered, and stored with ice harvested from nearby lakes. At Total Wine and More, we have an ice cave of our own filled with a huge selection of ales and lagers from around the world. Just remember the next time you enjoy one, give a little cheers to fermentation. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, let's leave it there for now and uh, go to the former president's bedfellows, as it's increasingly clear, Fox News. So uh, I just want to start with this week. Man, you know, you're looking at a verdict coming at them like a freight train. We'll talk about it in a moment. But Tucker Carlson comes out with his first exposition of the footage that he has been uniquely gifted by uh, the, the speaker. And stunning, right? It, you know, calls it all sightseers, a whitewash as white as a wash can be. What's going on there with all the sort of hot water there? And that had to have been a kind of a corporate decision, right? And does it surprise you that in this precarious moment for them, they're very true to form with respect to January 6th? And not to put too fine a point on it, that is to say lying about January 6th. But you wonder, Harry, how much of it really is a corporate decision based off of all of the text messages and discovery that Dominion has now unearthed yeah. for all of us about all of the internal workings of, of that place. You wonder how much control the top executives are really exercising. We certainly see a lot of hand-wringing behind the scenes in relation to a variety of different things that their three premier hosts are doing on any given night. But I didn't see in any of that discovery a lot of meaningful mechanisms that they had to rein them in. And the idea that they're doing an after action right now, holding classes on libel law is sort of laughable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like a yeah. little bit late. I think Brian Stelter had a piece where someone's actually quoted saying like, I think it's a little too late for that, guys. So to the extent that there were lessons learned. <laughs> best practices. Right, best exactly. practices, ways to avoid liability, yeah. ways yeah. to not find ourselves in a $1.6 billion lawsuit where we might actually <laughs> lose. It's not at all clear to me that the top level executives are able to exert control and that it feels as though the Tucker Carlson's and Hannity's and Laura Ingram's have all the leverage. And I'm sure we can get into this, but just the lack of respect and contempt that they have for their viewers and the way it was just on full display with little to no consequences that I can tell. And I haven't looked at the numbers in ratings, but I don't think there's been some massive drop-off in viewership since all of this was exposed. It wasn't as if everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is what they actually thought of us. Everyone who was still watching at 9 p.m. on a Monday, I assume is still watching. I also feel like my 
version of porn is like when you get to see behind the scenes at another news outlet like there's just (laughs) nothing I love more um and (laughs) so it was this fascinating window I haven't been writing about it but I've just been following it as a lawyer and what's funny is the one thing that jumped out at me is they had the Arizona call in 2020 first they called it first and they got it right and that is always my goal as a journalist to be right and then to be first and what was striking again as I was just watching is you know there's these discussions about how this was this horrible thing you know they worked for ages to put together this system that could call the states first and right which any news organization would kill for and now the people responsible for that have basically been fired and jettisoned and you know there was internal talk about like maybe we know it but we just like we don't tell anyone and again it's just fascinating to see those kind of inner machinations I just want to say I'm going to take Ashley's porn quote and get a crocheted on a pillow for her (laughs) to have in in her office. And here's the thing, though, which is like I, too, sort of followed the story. It's interesting to think about all the scripts I send to standard so that a bunch of lawyers can look at them and make sure that I'm getting things right. Now, even after they see them, I'm like, are we sure it's right? Like that anxiety that we share because it is so important to get things right because, to your point, Laura, about viewers – That is the relationship we have with our viewers. That is why they trust us, because we are making sure that our priority is to be honest with them and to get the facts to them. I'm struck by that piece as well. I'm also, though, like, need to remind myself that in as much as this is very intriguing as a media story, this is a story with enormous stakes. I mean, the lies that they were repeating have done such undeniable damage to our democracy They've made things unsafe for election workers, for like just Americans who like to volunteer and help out with elections, like are now scared to participate in the basic functions of our democracy. You have people who have had physical threats against them. You have police officers who've lost their lives. I mean, this is a libel case. And this is where I'm interested in hearing from the people who've done more than taken the LSAT and decided not to go to law school, which is like (laughs) the legal piece of this for now is about dominion. But to me, there's an entire other conversation about accountability of people who we know were knowingly lying to us. I wrote about this yesterday. I think it's an awesome point. This is probably the biggest defamation loss in the history of the country, but it's much bigger than that. It's something that, you know, they're more than a knowingly lying organization. They're a knowingly lying organization that is at the service of everything that went awry over the last several years in January 6th. So in that sense, it's enormous. Laura, I hadn't thought about this point. I'm I'm put in mind now of the big New York Times expose, which was when I stopped doing Fox News as a contributor. I saw your tweet about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really fascinating. I'm thinking of the way Murdoch threw his reporters under the bus. Maybe there's this fault line there now between owners and executives and, you know, people like Ingram and Carlson, who just have tremendous power to double down. And one thing about this, I thought about a little more, you know, there's no one to really sue here. Mm. He lies about it, but, you know, who's aggrieved? You know, it's just back to their cartoon presentation to their cartoon watching public. So let me ask, we've heard, eh, you know, they doubled down. We've also heard enormous stakes, as Elisa just said. Is this, does this feel, do you think, at Fox or to you like an existential threat or just, just a big one? Well, an existential threat to democracy or to... No, to Fox, <laughs> yeah. Well, both. Well, I think those answers may perhaps differ. It, it, it certainly yeah. feels like on the legal front, Dominion has a very strong case. And if I was yeah. general counsel for Fox, I would be like up sweating at night about this case. You know, Carrie, you clerked, I clerked. I can't remember in recent memory a summary judgment motion that was chock full of that much material in a, a long time. Like, it's a spectacular yeah. read. Like, kudos to them for <laughs> pushing this case as, as hard as they did. Yeah. That's like every lawyer's dream, I think, to be able to put together a motion <laughs> that tells a story like that. Because so yeah. frequently you're sort of dealing through innuendo and trying to make your best case. But like this was like served up on a platter and will be taught in law school about Definitely. a knowing intention to deceive, I think is quite spectacular. Company-wide. Yeah. Company-wide. But again, 
is it an existential threat to them? To me, not unless it affects their bottom line. And at the end of the day, if this is all about money and all about still having viewership, I'm not sure I have yet seen a real threat to their audience and a real disruption yet, I think I haven't seen to the people who live and die by Fox News turning off the TV. I also think Pillow Guy, who's floating like a significant chunk of their ads, would need to be the one to walk away to. And, And that's not happening. And I think in an ordinary environment, if you were in an existential crisis, you would not have Tucker Carlson doubling down by reworking footage exclusively obtained footage from the Speaker of the House of Representatives to construct an alternative narrative about what happened and what Americans saw with their own eyes. The fact that you have McConnell, that you have Tillis, you have all these Republicans coming out and saying, like, please stop this. Like, this is not how this should have gone down. This is not helpful to democracy. It shows that they're not operating in a normal environment. Right. Like this should be an existential crisis. And it's not. Yeah. I mean, and maybe in some way, like Tucker Carlson's more powerful than all of them. I totally agree with Laura. What a case that's been put together. I think it does have to go to trial. It'll be interesting because it's super strong case, but not for the amount of damages they want. So in that situation, you would think you might settle. But they seem really gung ho. Fox has gone ahead and hired, you know, one of the five best trial lawyers in the country. They're definitely gearing up for trial. So more of this to come. But uh, just a quick closeout. It wasn't a surprise, I think. And it showed the essential contempt for their viewers that they all knew it was a lie uh, that they were selling every week in, week out. But what about this loathing of Trump? I hate him passionately. I can't wait till he's gone. I wouldn't have uh, predicted that. Or is that sort of an open secret among savvy DC reporters like the three of you. (laughs) So I am not a media reporter and I don't cover Fox and some of those opinion shows, right? They're, they're opinion shows. And you sort of assume if you have the, again, not as a reporter, but if you have the freedom of sharing your opinion, you would assume they're sharing their honest opinion. But in general, uh, it is widely applicable to what I have seen covering Trump in DC. And again, he does have some real supporters and true believers among, say, lawmakers and donors. But there was this period where, you know, if you gave these members of Congress, for instance, truth serum, right, about what they actually thought of Trump, you know, they would have said, like, I want him to disappear Rumpelstiltskin style in like a cloud of dust or whatever. Um, (laughs) But then in public, they would say, that's my porn, by the way. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) Rumpelstiltskin. Sorry, we're going to cut that part. No, we're going to turn that into a GIF. That was perfect. (laughs) But they would say in public, didn't see the tweet, you know, and support his his policies. And some of that was rooted in fear. Some of that was rooted in their own political concerns back in their states and districts. So broadly covering Trump, you very frequently saw people say one thing privately and another thing publicly, although you might not have expected it to the same degree on opinion shows at a network like Fox. I think a lot of that had leaked out, Harry, for people who follow that that obsessively, the fact that they weren't in love with him anymore. What was striking to me is you'd watch them lie on air and you'd be like, well, they've got to be smart enough to not believe this and know this is a lie. That was true, but they weren't smart enough to not put that exact sentiment in text messages. Right. Talk about what lawyers love. You got to get the text. It's always so Just like yeah. pull each other aside in the hallway. Like don't, <laughs> yeah. don't put in a text message. Exactly. All right. I wanted to take a few minutes to just talk about the national landscape over abortion. You know, in Dobbs, Justice Alito wrote proudly that the court's now returning the issue to the people in the various states. Well, you know, it's here. And the last... Several weeks, it seems to me, we've seen a country especially roiled by it. In fact, let me start there and maybe ask you about this, Alicia. We've got four or five pretty big pitched battles going on. Is that somehow connected to the approach of the election or just a happenstance? How do you view it? I'm not sure the extent to which it is coordinated or happenstance. I do think it is striking 
that one, we continue to watch what is happening in Texas with this ruling that we're waiting for vis-a-vis one of the two big abortion pills on the market. Because I think what that will shift should that come down and Kaczmarek ban the use of Mifepristone is that people will realize that a single court in a single state can have a ruling that impacts people nationwide. And that that is sort of the reality of the moment that we're living in, especially when you're talking about a drug that in addition to being used for elective procedures, also used when a woman has not naturally completed a miscarriage. You know, for years, abortion rights advocates have had this line, abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare. I don't know that they have ever been as effective as breaking through with that message as the anti-abortion rights movement has been now that people in this country are living with the reality of not having access to that healthcare, whether it is in the form of medication or whether it is in the form of a surgical procedure. I thought this week was interesting because it felt like one of the first weeks where, you know, there've been a lot of like, they'll say, oh, it's a win. It's a win for abortion rights. But most of the wins that we've seen have been pretty defensive. They're defense wins. They stop something additionally restrictive from happening. But this week, the fact that you had the Michigan legislature voting to roll back a 1931 statute in their state, the fact that you had these seven women in Texas bringing a lawsuit there that really, like, again, to your point about what is possible in a legal document, really detailing the horrifying consequences that this has had for women at a basic health and humanity level. So to me, this week started to feel like there was picking up some momentum, if at a minimum, a counter narrative and a counter punch from abortion rights advocates, where to date, I think it's been hard to find those moments. That's so spot on, Alicia, because as you put it, like going on the offense is usually not the move. And the Texas lawsuit where the, the women who by all accounts, wanted to be pregnant and through no fault of their own, went through something where there was a clear medical emergency and were denied care. Sort of telling those stories, I thought, was just a different frame for most people. But I think part of the sort of percolation that's going on right now is all of this waiting for whatever happens with Kismeric in Texas. And so part of the energy, I feel like, is sort of just when there's something in the air because you know something big is going to happen and it hasn't quite happened yet. And so everything else is like a little bit of a spark because everyone's waiting for the really seismic shift, which is if he decides to order the FDA to withdraw Mifepristone nationwide and issues a nationwide injunction, it will be the first time that arguably women in places like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago feel what women in places like Texas and Mississippi have felt for a very long time. And there will be less of this opportunities to sort of, you know, jump on a plane or jump in your car and and do all the things that, you know, people of positions of privilege have been able to do for quite some time. If he does that, and even if it's stayed by an appellate court soon thereafter, there will be this- circuit, not so likely, right? Right, but even, let's assume it is. I I get in a debate with my husband about this almost every day, about (laughs) whether or not there will be a stay. Even if there is, for that moment in time in which women in blue states have been sort of clueless about this for a long time, that all collapses in a way, I think that will be just seismic. But you were about to say something, Laura, too, that I don't want to get lost, which is there will be a window between those two actions. Yes. And this is what I keep hearing from providers, which is there will be a woman who is getting in her car to drive to her local pharmacy to pick up this drug. And in that period of time between his potential ruling and a potential stay, she will not have access. Yes. And it's what we're hearing from providers more generally, which is they are finding themselves in moments where they need to be making life-altering decisions for a patient. They need to be making a medical decision, and they're on the phone with the hospital lawyers because they're trying to navigate a lot of gray area around what is and isn't within bounds. And that is all by design, right? The confusion, the chill. It's not just about not having access. It's a mess. And we're talking about the procedure of choice for more than 50% of terminations all over the country. Now, this is one where the administration, I'm certain, will fight very hard. They've already issued an opinion that basically says this is FDA territory. You can't stop even women 
in red states with draconian laws from having mifepristone sent to them in the mail. And by the way, this is such a uh, nasty lawsuit because you can still have the other medication, but yeah. it just makes it harder, more painful, more dangerous, etc. But I think, yeah, this would be a titanic battle royale. And it goes to a whole nother legal problem, broader or narrower than abortion, depending on how you think about it, which is this nationwide injunction uh, possibility. But which is what's so funny, because Harry, you know that this is sort of the darling of some conservatives like Justice oh. Gorsuch, where if in fact this ruling comes to pass, this of course is headed to the Supreme Court. And so it's funny because certainly nationwide injunctions have been used across the aisle, both sides of the administration, certainly the Obama administration hated them when it came to immigration and the Trump administration hated them when it came to immigration and the travel ban. But it will be interesting to see how the justices deal with a nationwide injunction should he issue one on something that maybe politically they're okay with. Including not just how they eventually adjudicate the case, but if five of them don't stay the injunction, yeah. then you have, you know, a year yeah. potentially of grievous. Which um, is what they did with SBA. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And just going back to something Alicia mentioned earlier that I think a lot of people until recently didn't even realize, again, is that this is a pill that women use when they are miscarrying, but the miscarriage has not been completed. And right. every savvy messenger in politics understands that the way you win and lose these fights that affect millions of people is through the story of a single person. And there is nothing more devastating if you talk to women than going to an appointment eight-week, 12-week appointment of someone who is, wants to be pregnant, finding out there's no heartbeat, and then being told you can't take this pill that doctors recommend often as the safest, easiest way to complete a miscarriage. And that is a very powerful messaging tool for the abortion rights crowd that takes it away from abortion, which is so politicized, to something that almost everyone has a, a very high degree of empathy for. I just want to double back at the end. Last point, you know, DeSantis now seems ready. Florida seems ready to enact a six-week ban, which is before many women even know they're pregnant. We are out of time. I'm so sad to say it's been a great conversation, except we do have, oh, Lisa, you may not know this, a minute for our final feature of Talking Five, <laughs> where we take a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And the question today is, what will Tucker Carlson's next argument be? What will he next present with the January 6th footage? Five words or fewer, contestants. I have just read my text, bro. <laughs> nice. Perfect. Oh, man, you're invited back when you knew that already, of course. Okay, I think I could do it in three, which is look over here. <laughs> nice. Nice. I just want to be clear that this is not my personal opinion. This is based on the pre. This is based on the previous footage he has shown. You're already uh, at I, 25 words. I would go with, no, no, no. I would go with perfect day at nation's capital. <laughs> um, sightseers singing Kumbaya with Pelosi. Very sad to say we are out of time. Thank you very much to Alicia, Laura, and Ashley. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down the latest legal and political developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with great friend of the podcast, Juliet Kayyem, about how Elon Musk's changes to Twitter are diluting its effectiveness as a powerful disaster response tool. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. 
Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Ms. Pat for explaining how criminal conduct by very young offenders is handled. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.